Welcome, come on in, Earthalluia. This is the Earth Church. I'm Reverend Billy. And for today's sermon, God and Earth. Very touchy, very dangerous, right there in the culture wars. Some of you are already offended. <laughs> I know I'm talking to many people in different countries and cultures. There are many ways that well, some religions allow the earth to have the complexity and power that it naturally has. And other religions, well, my own background from hard right apocalyptic Christians, they are afraid of the earth apparently. They want to control it, push it away. Well, they can't. Maybe they're finding that out now with the wildfires and hurricanes and the virus. The earth has all this power. Now, we have an activist task to accomplish today. We have a job to do. We have to look into the way that religious people operate. Religious passion. It's made revolutions succeed in history. If we were to discover a spiritual way to be earth activists, spiritual earth activists, that's this radio show. Operating in a faith. If we could hook into that earth power. Amen? How do those grandmothers have the willingness to handcuff themselves to bulldozers to stop a pipeline? And how do the water protectors stand up to the oil company militias at Standing Rock singing their water prayers in front of the guns? Oh, the earth, the transformative miracle it's the living earth in us. Yes, we're saving the earth because the earth's in us. And the earth is saving us because we're in the earth. Amen? Amazing. We all have it in us, this power, whether we have God hovering over us or not. Hallelujah! 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 H
My name is LaDonna Brave Bull Ellard. My real name is Tamakawa Shtewi. I am an enrolled member of the Stunning Rock Sioux Tribe. I am Ihunktua, Pabeska, and Sisitan Dakota. I am Hunkpapa, Sihasapa, and Oguala Lakota. And I am from the Cannonball River. My life and my tribe is I am the tribal historian and tribal genealogist. And so I compile history of my tribe and my people and put all the family together, who's related, how they're related, because in our culture we have a lot of cultural rules on relationships. And so that is what I've done for about 35, 37 years now. I only can trace till 1600 because everything, our, our lives are oral and so if your family did not keep the oral history, it's gone. But ours, we have a, a cutoff. Goes back to a great massacre where we lost the majority of our people, and that's where we cut off. After the massacre, the remnants of the people who survived created families again. So I can only go to the massacre. When the Standing Rock Sioux tribe was faced with the ideal of of this pipeline, it was not about anti-oil or anti-pipeline. It was about the protection of the water. We still have our tribal ways and our tribal beliefs. So when we cross the water, we pray for the water. We have a connection to the water. The water is a living being. The water is the first medicine of the world. And so we have these cultural ways and then all of a sudden somebody is going to come in the middle of our culture and divide it. And so it's a, a little more for us. Um, I worked for the Tribal Historic Preservation Office and my job was to protect sacred sites, burial sites, traditional cultural properties, village sites from desecration and this project was going to destroy all of them. And so we started by talking to our community. And we went to the schools and we talked to the kids. We started the first project of asking all the kids, what do you think of the water? From kindergarten on up, the kids wrote about what they thought about water. And basically what they told us, water is life.
LaDonna Brave Bull says that her people pray for the water when they walk on a bridge over the river. And this inspires me too. Maybe I'll walk out to the lake out here in Prospect Park. I've done it before. I'll talk to the lake a little bit, thank the lake for its beautiful waves and the reflection. And then I'll stop talking and pretend that the lake will talk back to me in some way, in a thought, in a memory of a lake from long ago in my life, something watery. It's pretending, trying to prime the pump. And if someone sees me then in the middle of it, well, that would be the embarrassment that I have to crash through, right? Amen. Just turn to that person and say, join me. And we will rise to the sacred state of exalted embarrassment together. Well, how does a white person enter wildness? By paying for it? I believe in the God that people who don't believe in God believe in. I go to the most populated religious faith in the USA. None of the above. There is a clumsiness and the feeling of not being natural enough. Can I put it that way? <laughs> Talk to the water, feel the water in ourselves. We're made of water. And then worry that no one will believe us. We know we have the earth inside of us, but then the indigenous way may not work for us. The Christians will say that God may help, but that God does not always help he does what he wants and some of us will feel the earth inside of us from watching reruns of the creature from the black lagoon you can start this anywhere in the circle as they say others among us won't know the earth until a tsunami hits us towers over our cottage like a 50s horror movie sweeps us out to sea Saving ourselves should be a motivator to do something that's a little bit strange. And saving the life of the earth, or more to the point, the life of the earth saving us, that should inspire us. I believe that suddenly the earth will be in us. We, we will be the earth and we will know it. And we will all know it. We'll all feel it. Each of us and all of us. A dynamic change will happen. The earth will insist you know, like a benign version of the virus. The virus insists. Everybody's ignoring extinction, ignoring natural disasters, but the virus insists. I'm here. You have to change how you're living. A complete change. The culture, I believe this, the culture will flip over. Right now, pop culture just kind of ignores the whole thing, but there will be endless new, talk shows, Oprah's for the earth, Colbert's for the earth. And when every kind of person, even urban and suburban, have that earth in them, and we are beyond bravery, we're covering oil refineries with our bodies. Yeah, they'll call us crazy, they'll give us names. I hear them calling us earthers, those crazy earthers. And they'll put us in jail and they'll sue us and they'll all kinds of trouble. But the wind and the rain and the fire and the viruses, 
and just the earth, the souls of extinct animals will be flooding the cities. The earthers, we will appear in large numbers and surprise everyone like flocks of birds coming down out of the sky. First of all, they will ignore us, then they'll laugh at us, then they'll fight, then they'll lose, and the earth will be the winner. Although I don't know if the earth ever knew she was in a contest. She doesn't have to be. Not with us. Earthaluya. Hello, welcome to News from the Natural World. I'm Savitri D. Javier Francisco Pada, a Colombian environmental official, was assassinated on December 3rd in the municipality of La Macarena in Colombia's south near the department of Meta. Historically, this is a zone of armed conflict in the Amazon with frequent issues related to deforestation and land grabbing. Pada was coordinator of the Corporation for the Sustainable Development of the La Macarena Special Management Area. He was a 20-year veteran of the Environmental Authority. Between January 1st and December 6th, 2020, 284 environmental leaders and defenders have been assassinated in Colombia. A day after Brazil announced 11,000 square kilometers of annual deforestation, France, the EU's biggest buyer of Brazilian soy flour, announced plans to become more self-sufficient on the commodity. As Brazil continues deforesting and burning the Amazon at an alarming rate, France has announced plans to drastically reduce its dependency on Brazilian soy flour and stop importing deforestation. France currently is the EU's largest importer of Brazilian soy flour, buying 1.9 million tons annually. While the loss of its soy sales to France is of concern to Brazilian soy producers and commodities companies, agribusiness has expressed greater anxiety over whether Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro's continued anti-environmental rhetoric and policies will provoke a large-scale international boycott of Brazilian commodities. Coca-Cola was ranked the world's number one plastic polluter after its beverage bottles were the most frequently found discarded on beaches, rivers, parks, and other litter sites in 51 of 55 nations surveyed. Last year, it was the most frequently littered bottle in 37 countries out of 51 surveyed. It was found to be worse than PepsiCo and Nestle combined. Coca-Cola branding was found on 13,834 pieces of plastic, with PepsiCo branding on 5,155, and Nestle branding on 8,633. The annual audit, undertaken by 15,000 volunteers around the world, collected 346,494 pieces of plastic waste, 63% of which was marked clearly with a consumer brand. In March, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Nestle, and Unilever were found to be responsible for half a million tons of plastic pollution in six developing countries each year. Up to 91% of all the plastic waste ever generated has not been recycled and ended up being incinerated in landfill or in the natural environment. Mass die-offs of coho salmon just before they are about to spawn have been traced to tire fragments washed into streams by rain. For decades, something in urban streams has been killing coho salmon in the Pacific Northwest. Up to 90% of the adults migrating up certain streams to spawn suddenly die after rainstorms. 
researchers report online in Science that the primary culprit comes from a chemical widely used to protect tires from ozone, a reactive atmospheric gas. The toxicant, called 6-PPD quinone, leaches out of the small particles that tires shed onto pavement. Even small doses killed coho salmon in the lab. The researchers suspect the compound is present on busy roads everywhere. The simplest solution might be for tire manufacturers to switch to an environmentally benign alternative. Another way to protect salmon is to filter stormwater through soil, but installing enough infiltration basins to treat road runoff before it reaches spawning streams would be very expensive. The European Space Agency finalized a contract to launch a mission in 2025 that will be the first to capture and dispose of a piece of orbiting space junk. The Clear Space One mission will home in on a piece of debris the size of a washing machine, grapple it with a four-armed claw, and escort it down to a lower orbit where the duo will enter the atmosphere and burn up. The space around Earth is becoming increasingly crowded because satellites have traditionally been left in orbit when their useful life ends. In higher orbits, they can remain there for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. The 5,500 launches over the 60 years of the space age have left 23,000 objects larger than a grapefruit in orbit. There are many millions of smaller objects that can't be tracked. At the speeds things move in low Earth orbit, even a collision with a stray bolt can be catastrophic. The biotech company Moderna announced the final results of the 30,000-person efficacy trial for its COVID-19 vaccine candidate. Only 11 people who received two doses of the vaccine developed COVID-19 symptoms after being infected with the pandemic coronavirus, versus 185 symptomatic cases in a placebo group. That is an efficacy of 94.1%, far above what many vaccine scientists were expecting just a few weeks ago. More impressive still, Moderna's candidate had 100% efficacy against severe disease. There were zero such COVID-19 cases among those vaccinated, but 30 in the placebo group. As global temperatures rise, scientists have found that the sand around the Red Sea is now warm enough to cause sea turtle hatchlings in the area to be born almost entirely female, threatening the future survival of the region's sea turtle population. The sex of turtle eggs is determined by environmental temperature as they incubate. The city of Eluru in southern India was slammed with a mysterious illness that has hospitalized more than 550 people with symptoms including a loss of consciousness, convulsions, seizures, and an unexplained giddiness. The outbreak is unrelated to the current COVID-19 pandemic as none of the patients had tested positive for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. While there are preliminary hypotheses about the cause of the illness, no definitive cause has been named yet. Beginning on December 5th, hundreds of people around the city began experiencing symptoms. There was no common thread between them as the patients lived in various areas around town, had different water sources, were unrelated to one another, and represented a wide range of ages. The All India Institute of Medical Sciences found traces of lead and nickel in blood samples from some of the patients. While heavy metals can have neurotoxic effects in the human body, there is not yet a clear source. And now, the sounds of extinction. The Tasmanian devil is a carnivorous marsupial. It was once native to mainland Australia and was only found in the wild on the island state of Tasmania. 
It has now been reintroduced to New South Wales with a small breeding population. The size of a small dog, the Tasmanian Devil, is the largest carnivorous marsupial in the world. It is characterized by its stocky and muscular build, black fur, pungent odor, keen sense of smell, and ferocity when feeding. The Tasmanian Devil's large head and neck allow it to generate among the strongest bites per unit body mass of any extant predatory land mammal. It hunts prey and scavenges carrion, as well as eating household products if humans are living nearby. Although devils are usually solitary, they sometimes eat and defecate together in a communal location. They are capable of surprising speed and endurance and can climb trees and swim across rivers. Devils are not monogamous. Males fight one another for females and guard their partners to prevent female infidelity. The devil stores body fat in its tail and healthy devils have fat tails. Experts estimate that the devil has suffered a more than 80% decline in its population since the mid-90s, and that only around 10 to 15,000 remain in the wild. It is threatened by habitat loss, automobile strikes, and above all, by devil facial tumor disease, a contagious form of cancer found only in Tasmanian devils. The cancer is spread when cancerous tissue from one animal comes into contact with exposed tissue in another animal generally as a result of biting. The cancer leads to tumors in the jaw and mouth that reduce the animal's ability to eat. Victims typically die within a year. Recently, researchers found that as the tumors grew larger, Tasmanian devils reduced socialization. And when the tumors reached a certain size, the devils did not socialize at all. The researchers suggest such behavior has slowed the spread of the disease, likely preventing Tasmanian devils from going completely extinct and hear the sounds of the Tasmanian Devil. Bernie Krause is a biophonist. He takes the sound of life and reintroduces it to us. And we realize the extent to which we haven't been listening. So we're going to introduce Dr. Bernie Krause, who began his professional career in sound as a recording engineer and backup studio guitarist for early Motown sessions. Uh, he later joined the folk group The Weavers, filling the tenor position originally created by the late Pete Seeger, the late great Pete Seeger. <laughs> After receiving his doctorate in marine bioacoustics, he began his second career as a founder of Soundscape Ecology, a new field of study that includes recording, analyzing, and archiving the marine and terrestrial soundscapes of remaining wild habitats. Since 1979, Dr. Krauss has concentrated almost exclusively on these recordings and archiving wild natural soundscapes around the world. He's the author of The Great Animal Orchestra, Finding the Origins of Music in the World's Wild Places. 
You can find all those amazing uh, sounds at wildsanctuary.com. And Dr. Krauss, uh, welcome to The Earth Wants You. Thank you. Dr. Krauss, we start our interview usually by asking people what their favorite place on Earth is. Oh, mine's easy. It's Alaska. That's a big spot, though. You've got to narrow it down just a bit. Well, it's a big spot because it has so many wonderful habitats in it that are still viable in a way. Mm. Alaska is a state that's three times the size of France, and it has only 750,000 people in it. Uh-huh. It's the only place where, in the U.S. where you can really get away from human habitat far enough away so that you get what Bill McKibben calls the wild, where you can walk for a week in any direction without ever hitting a road or a fence, Mm. where there's no ranger to tell you about the life cycle of a bear or a wolf, and where, you know, best of all, there's nothing to buy. (laughs) Stop shopping! (laughs) Well, that's funny, because I wanted to tell you, uh, for Christmas gifts, I gave members of my family... Uh, different recordings from your site, wildsanctuary.com. Um, I just thought they were the most beautiful things I'd ever heard. And I gave Billy uh, the Adirondacks, the loons in the Adirondacks, because that's sort of his favorite ecosystem. I'm a Minnesota boy. You know. He loves listening to those loons. Right. And it was just, it was a great gift to give people, you know, the sound. And they could sit down and, and really, if you close your eyes, wow, it's incredible how accurate the world you've made in those recordings or the world you've recorded is. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about biophonics and what that means. Well, biophonics, it really, we're talking about the soundscape. And the soundscape is clearly a narrative of place. It's the language that conveys where we are, whether that place is urban, rural, or wild habitat. And the soundscape is comprised of three basic sources of sound, and these are things that I named in the course of my work. And the first and original source of sound on the planet was the geophony, geo meaning earth and phone from the Greek meaning sound. So geophony are all the sounds that are produced in the wild uh, that are non-biological, like the, the effect of wind in the trees or water in a stream, waves at the ocean shore, that kind of thing. And the second source is the biophony, bio meaning life, and phone again meaning sound, so sounds of all living organisms. And in my work, um, I try to identify that as the collective sound that comes from all the organisms vocalizing together in a given habitat. And the third is the anthropophony, and that's all the human noise that we create, uh, some of it controlled like music and language and theater. But most of it is electromechanical, and it's incoherent, and it doesn't contain very much information, useful information for us. And that's what we call noise. So you've got those three components of the soundscape, and that is where biophony fits in. It's the most important of all because it's the sound of life. So you pioneered this concept, the niche theory, right? Um... Yes. The niche theory is just simply it's the way that the biophony is expressed in a healthy habitat. For instance, if you go to Africa or you go to the Amazon or to even Alaska, what you find is in healthy habitats, all of the voices, the birds, the mammals, the insects, the amphibians, all find frequency bandwidth or temporal bandwidth when they vocalize to stay out of each other's way. Otherwise, I mean, it's just like instruments in an orchestra. If the voices can't be clearly heard in their own channels, then they're going to be masked. And if their voices are are a part of their 
existence in terms of having a value for their life, they need to be heard. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to survive in that habitat. An unhealthy habitat shows no niche discrimination, so you won't see the various niches and different frequencies because all the animals are competing for acoustic territory. Mm. Yeah, I thought it was so interesting on your website. You talk about how you can really uh, determine the health of a ecosystem by the missing sounds, that there yeah. are big gaps in the acoustic uh, landscape. I should note here on the show is that over 50% of my archive comes from habitats that are either altogether silent or they no longer express themselves in any of their original oh, form. Oh, and, and that's both marine and terrestrial. We're talking about coral reefs as well. So when I realized that the folks at NASA in the climate department are beginning to transfer their data out of the country and to different safe places and backing it up, I've got a huge amount of bioacoustic data here and uh, have been not only storing it, but also making sure sending it to different places around the world. Fahrenheit 451. Fahrenheit, exactly Fahrenheit 451. It's done in different formats because if one format gets compromised, uh-huh. the other formats will be able to survive. Uh-huh. And it's being sent, you know, all over the place. I'm actually talking to somebody as an art concept to get all these hard drives and send them off into space. Mm. If it was really Fahrenheit 451, we would be training school children. We'd, we'd give each each person a a species to memorize, right? Yeah, exactly here's, here's right. The, here's the cloud-speckle-breasted right. cuckoo from Costa Rica. <laughs> <laughs> and how is morale amongst the scientific community that you work with? Well, it's pretty low. But, you know, i got to tell you something that this, assault on science. They talk about an assault on Christmas. This assault on science has been going on now since, right. the, since the Clinton administration. Uh-huh. So it's nothing new with this particular one or with the one preceding it. I mean, Clinton really started that. There's a book called Science Under Siege, which talks about you know how this has all come about and uh, how it's manifesting itself now. And it was written, the book was written maybe 10 years ago. But it's a fabulous, interesting piece to uh, check out if anyone's interested in what's happening with the scientific community. I mean, in my experience, amongst the scientists that I've known in my lifetime, there was always this remarkable long view, right? And you would talk about the sort of catastrophic things going on in politics and culture and uh, you know, the scientists in my life always remi- they, they hewed to the long view, and it was always sort of reassuring. At the same time, a little bit confusing. I always thought, well, I know, but what do I do with the long view? Here's my life, and here's my ethical position, and the problem of, you know, getting up in the morning. What do I do all day? So um, now I find we're at this funny juncture of the long view and the the catastrophe. Um, you know, with with climate models sort of breaking down with Arctic sea melt, and the reason I like Alaska so much is because. It's so telling with regard to this. When we went up to Alaska to do the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and record that in 2006, keep in mind that it's never been recorded before. Mm. So when we went up in 2006, I took three teams with me to record there uh, in three different spots. We had 21 spots identified that we wanted to hit. But June 1st of 2006, we couldn't land at 18 of them because the tundra was too soft. Oh, wow. And so we were left with only three 
a choice of three, and we picked those three and, and recorded there. But it was really touch and go because things had changed so radically. The permafrost was melting. It was just, you couldn't. Well, Bill. You couldn't. Bill, more than that, more than the permafrost, where the American robin, a very common bird in the lower 48, where the American robin had never been further north than Fairbanks, which is kind of located smack in the middle of the state. Right. It had never been seen north of Fairbanks. The American robin was already well into the refuge, which is way north of Fairbanks, several hundred miles. And it was so uncommon that the Native Americans who lived in those different villages from uh, Arctic Village on north to Kaktovik, they didn't even have a name for the bird. Wow. <laughs> this is just a new bird. An old, it's a an new old... bird. You know, if that doesn't energize us into active defense of this life here on this earth, that's got to be... Well, like in any relationship, listening is so critical, right? And so our relationship to the earth, we we also have to learn to listen. We have to learn to hear Mm. what it's telling us. And, And when Dr. Krauss talks about the health of an ecosystem and how you instantly recognize its health or ill health based on what you hear or do not hear in that place... Well, it gives me a very tender sensation. It gives me a feeling of of care and concern. It's not just my regular care and concern. It's one that's based on on a listening state, an empathic, compassionate state. So I advise everyone to spend a little bit more time listening to the earth. Less time thinking, more time listening. And the river has been the god of our earth church today. I think you noticed that. Some of you have been with us now for weeks and some of you for months. And you know that we have a way that we present a puzzle. We start out with a a challenge. How do we make spiritual earth activism that is more than anger and fear, more than ideology more than data and research and litigation and cocktail parties, all the the ways that people have tried to defend the earth hasn't really added up to enough, has it? So we're finding a new way in the ancient ways. LaDonna Brave Bull handles Messiah deconstructed. And of course, the lessons of the news from the natural world with Savitri D, how serious our accelerating extinction is something we are trained to forget by consumerism. And Dr. Bernie Krauss, like LaDonna Bravebull Allard, giving us a simple, immovable kind of faith. He says, immerse yourself in the earth and listen. And don't just listen to the things you can hear, listen to things that you're missing. Because as activists, We want to see the whole picture because we want to be involved in evolution. Extinction is a process of evolution. We have to develop a what? A fin in the back and feathers in the fingers, and we don't know what. But our now has to be in the future. We have to fly. We have to move for the missing species. Move for life. Move for life. That's what rivers do. 
And Jason, thank you for that river that flowed through our earth service today. I want to thank Neil Young for developing this work with us over the last couple of years. I want to thank Pantheon Podcasts for putting us out to the podcast networks. Eva Jimenez for being our manager, leader. We want to thank all of you for we feel your presence. This is a conversation when LaDonna Brave Bull Allard says that her people converse with the water, pray to the water, consider water life. We feel that you're a part of this river that is flowing forward. We can be romantic about the river and look into the river like it's a fire and have dreams and feel that we have a belief in the earth. And then we have to immerse ourselves in the river and then we have to, we have to go into the funky karma of all the toxicity in the river. Some of us are not supposed to swim in the river. But we have to be in the earth now to become earthers, to become earthers, to become that new species of activism that is willing to be arrested. Oh, yes. Willing to risk all to put our bodies across that fracking well, across that refinery, put our bodies across that bank. Take on that toxicity. We can do that because we are the river too. Oh, what did Al Green sing? Take me to the river. That's why we believe in the God that people who don't believe in God believe in. We believe in the church of all of the above. That's the earth. We're from the church of none of the above, only sky above, no hell below. Thank you, John Lennon. Take me to the river. Just baptize us in our own funky ecosystem. We've got to deal with it. Rise up. Evolve. Earthalluya.
You can't. You can't take my home. You can't take my place. You, 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 you. You can't take my bed. You can't take my fire. Can't, 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 can't. You can't force my love. You can't take my life. You want to take our river flowing by in silence. You want to take our neighbor, burn us with your greed. You want to take our river where it meets the sea, but away. Will stop you. The things we cannot see. We need the things we cannot see. We see the things that we cannot be. We know the things. Can't understand. We stand in wonder, not knowing the plan.